Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the most podcast under one roof. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talk with Dina Falcone, author of Foraging and Feasting, a field guide and wild food cookbook. She's foraging and feasting, uh, all spelled out on Instagram, and foraging feasting on Facebook. Her website is botanicalartspress.com, where you can learn all about the classes and other educational resources that she offers. I wanted to have her on because even though we have a month left in winter, as soon as the snow retreats, there's going to be some food in the ground, uh, especially some of the wild chives and ground ivy and things that don't actually die over the winter. They just kind of lie there. And um, if anybody's going to get you excited about getting back outside and uh, working in the soil and taking walks with an eye towards actually accumulating some food on your trip, it's Dina. She knows as much or more than anybody else that I've ever met on this subject. And if you live, especially in the northeastern U.S., uh, where we are, she's really the authority on wild edibles in the plant kingdom, certainly. Her book is great. She teaches a ton of classes. She's a phenomenal resource and really good company. She's smart. She's funny. We had a good talk. So here's me and Dina Falcone at my dining room table talking about all the delicious stuff that's just about to come leaping out of the ground. It's free food, people. Learn your shit and enjoy it. Well, this seems sweet. I mean, it's large. Yeah. <laughs> it I'm is. Always, I'm always just, whatever. I'm always trying to think of, like, how can we all live in smaller spaces? I think about that a lot. Because it's just the craziness of our culture, right? Like We use a lot. We just consume a lot, even by sitting still. I mean, right, like, we have a home, it's 13 plus 100 square feet, and to me that seems huge for mm-hmm. two people now. For two, because, yeah, yeah. It feels masters, like, yeah. but it isn't huge. I mean, this is probably three times that size. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I mean, with the garage, I guess it is, and the basement. You know. I mean, we cheat because we have external, we have buildings, so I have my sure. own workshop. So we actually have, it's bullshit what I'm saying, like, we probably have more, like, you know, there's... A whole big barn, there's a separate bungalow, and there's another right. outdoor. So all told, it's like over 2,000, probably. But you're More not heating that. those? Not full-time. Plum, not plumbing them? Plumbed uh, part-time. Like uh, Cold water. seven months out of the year. No, all of it, but oh, okay. they get, it gets shut down. So um, there's four, yeah, all together, really, we have over 1,000 square feet. That's really high-functioning outside of the house, mm-hmm. plus a lot more space. Sure, sure. That's Do you have not, animals, too? Right now, no. No, but, uh, but you have. Chicken, yeah, we have a chicken realm, but right now it's on pause. <laughs> Chickens are a lot of work, and they're messy. Well, they were getting murdered. Oh, well, that happens, too. So <laughs> Tim was like, we got to kill them yeah. or give them away. I mean, not kill them. They're getting killed. They're murdering them. The, the fisher, um, so we had to... Um, yeah, and fisher cats are vicious. Well, it was, I think we had 50 and maybe 12 got murdered, and then Tim was like, who wants chickens because they're all going to go... He couldn't find how the um, fisher was getting in, mm. you know, so we couldn't save them. Yeah, 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 it's hard. No, I've never, it's funny. I mean, I like, I like gardening. I like plants uh, a lot, but animals are a whole ev- extra level of commitment. 
Also, if I go away for a week or two, I can have somebody water my garden. But no, you, you have to have, yeah. Well, we had chickens for 20 years, 30 years. This yeah. is like our first pause. Hmm. So. <laughs> so you've been up here for a big chunk of that time? Well, I've been up here since... Um, I never fully returned to New York City, which is where I was raised in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So I was up here part time from, you know, well, I went to Colgate, which was, you, you know, college yeah. in 80, what was that year? 82. Mm-hmm. And then I never fully moved back to New York City. Okay. What did you study? Does that have anything to do with where you are now? Well, I, I actually went to Colgate thinking I would do pre-med and mm-hmm. be an alternative medicine doctor. And then... I didn't do it. I was like, this is not creative enough. I, I, it's regurgitative. Like the whole approach to education in that, you know, becoming a pre-med or whatever was just completely uncreative. I was raised with heavy creativity in a way to the extreme that's not appealing, which is why I went to Colgate. It was like, I want to get away from egotistical, self-created, yeah. you know. I was raised in the village, in the mm-hmm. East Village, really radical lots of express yourself stuff sure and then i um thought well i went to performing arts high school in the years where it was on 46th street mm-hmm. the fame school i don't know if you're familiar with new york city well yeah i am i mean i grew up outside of boston but you know mm-hmm. i certainly spent a lot of time i had a cousin in the city in the 70s and into the 80s and when it was really raw you know, and rough my, and gnarly that was my and, time yeah i mean exactly. you know, new york city can't even afford it couldn't even afford to have a punk rock renaissance if it wanted to well, yeah. it did. What Maybe in mean? Sheepshead Bay, you know, Wait. out there where they can afford the rent. Now you Yeah, mean. now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you meant then. No, in the no. 70s, it was, that it was, was the there. Thing. You could live yeah. in Manhattan exactly. on very little income exactly. and be part of that very fertile scene. And now, I mean, That's there is it. no... That was where, I, right, so, you, you know, you were in this crazy scene of wonderfulness and awfulness at the same time. Yeah. And a kid yeah, growing up in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and I was like... So I decided I wanted to go somewhere very different. <laughs> and then I came back. To being at Bard College, which was back to being with the egotists. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. No, it's not a fair. I should not be so critical. They're wonderful. It was just like everybody was like, oh, look at me. Do you see me? Look at me. And I was like, oh, I'm sick Well, of yeah, this. academia has a vanity to it that's kind of baked in. And, and, and that particular artsy, I mean, I went to art school twice. I went to undergrad and graduate art school. Where did so you go to school? I went to RISD and then the Art Institute of Chicago. So oh, yeah. I'm, I'm somewhat acquainted with that. You are. <laughs> Although it's a different... It's a different thing, like the performing arts. Yeah. You know, the, the acting and the dance sure. is really different from the fine arts. Like we were not in the fine arts realm; that was music and art, and yeah. much quieter crew. Even the musicians, much quieter. Yeah. Still egoistic or whatever, but different flavor. Well, yeah, but I mean that kind of creativity. It's there's no question that it caters to a particular kind of vanity and and narcissism and and solipsism. Um, on the other hand, um, you also need to spend a huge amount of time in your own head in order to be good at it. I mean, I spent 10, 12 hours a day in the studio as a painter during that period when I was selling work for a living. Wow. And it was, you know, it's, it, I thought of it, it was a job, but it was also a meditative practice and a craft and a trade. It was a lot of things. Yeah, um, definitely. The, the hard work beyond being good at your job, the hard work for me was to reap the benefits from it that one would reap, say, from a yoga or a meditative practice, where it becomes an act of focusing and calming and, and reducing ego rather than increasing it. 
So wait, so you're saying that was the, what was that point? It, it was, to me, one of the most beneficial parts of right. being a painter full time yes, yes, was yes, that yes. I was able to actually to, to, reduce, go to that place. reduce my yes. narcissistic self-involvement Absolutely. And, and get to a, a, a place of, of, you know, sort of clean creativity, as it were, and right. not think about whether a piece would sell, not think about the galleries, not the, think about the public reception, right. just think about the thing in front of me. Right. And I think that is the, the beautiful thing that the arts can offer is mm-hmm. that centering, that presence. Um, I think when, though, it's being put out to be shared, that it gets more confusing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> because it, why does everyone need to see my shit? You know, it's, it's like true. it's true. It's like it, it's my process that I need to go through. This is my journey. Why am I sharing it? And as soon as something can be commodified, then there's all this other pressure that gets put on people to lean in that direction because they need the money, they want the attention, or it's just the way the system's sort of been built. And social media. I mean, I've talked to a number of people um, about it. And the pressures that it's putting all kinds of different industries because mm. you wanna, you have to you have to make a fuss and you have to wave your arms in the air and you have to do things that look extra pretty or extra interesting. And that's a whole other thing. That's and that's true. a whole other thing, but it has yeah. nothing to do with what you're actually doing in your no. daily life. I mean, but and also the idea that what you're doing that brings you that state of presence or whatever that that should be publicly shared. This right. is your private journey, yeah. so why would you share it? Yeah. To me, those were questions that kept coming up. It's like if this is my journey. Why am I asking people to look at me screaming, you know, with whatever I'm doing? I know. Going into... I have so many artist friends, though. This is a discussion that goes on. Well, but it's true. I mean, it's true if I have a dinner party. Do I want to take the time to whip out my phone and take pictures, you know, and document my dinner party so that strangers can look at it? Or do I want to be in the moment with my friends and make sure that I actually don't overcook, you know, whatever it is that I'm making? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, so then you're real... marketing yourself. Yeah. And so there's different things there. There's different, conver- you know, it goes into a different conversation. That's just documenting what you're doing and But it's invasive. It, it documents. It can an... be invasive. And it can also make you sort of, I mean, who's going to document the dirty dishes, right? You're not. You're going to take the beauty shot of the finished <laughs> meal right before everyone wrecks it and say, look at what I made. You know, not look at what a shit show my kitchen is and my wife's not speaking to me. <laughs> Until tomorrow when I clean it all up. You know what I'm saying? Like nobody No, I totally about- do. I do. I mean, I think I'm with you. I mean, a part of me, what I put on my, you know, and I, I don't have an iPhone. I don't have social media personally, but mm-hmm. I use it yeah. to share about my sure. work. Yeah. Not my work. Very successful. Not my work. The work of yeah, you know, yeah. nature study and, yeah, well, and your book, and which is beautiful. Food and, stuff. and I share photos that are not that attractive. Mm-hmm. Well, but you share you share a lot of illustrations from the book, which, well, are, very, I share the which are lovely. They are lovely, but I also share things that might be like, "What the hell are you sharing that for?" Because mm-hmm. it's not beautiful looking, um, and it's partly what you're saying is like, "Okay, how does the chicken look with elderberry mush on it? It looks right. kind of disgusting." Right, right, right. Well, it's real life though. <laughs> and somebody did write like puke or something. I think I deleted it. I was did like, you? That's funny. Because it was like puke, but I was like, you don't have to just. You don't have to say it. No, just enjoy it. Like yeah. you could have said positive puke, but instead. So it's that I know what you're saying, and I and I'm very much about that tension, just mm-hmm. like in life, you know. And I think part of the forging and feasting book has to do with bringing beauty to a world that most people step on and ignore yeah. and or spray and trash to make or it die. spray or have an, you know animosity towards. So that was the other way to kind of seduce people into. Yeah. The ugliness, the things that are in the shadow or the dark stuff is look how beautiful it is. 
um, look how you can use it. You know, but so the visual pages are a seduction process that's sure. fully educational, though it is not just for beauty's sake. No, no, no. I, well, it couldn't be because I needed it to serve highly as an educational yeah, tool. Yeah, absolutely, and it is. Yeah. Um, and I love, for example, anybody who spends any time working on their yard, beyond obviously spraying it, which is a different story, but anybody who doesn't, you know, who sort of is conscientious in that way, I love seeing the look on their face when I show them, for example, that like ground ivy or something actually makes a great mojito, you know? And they, they're all, holy shit, you know, because you just jujitsu this thing that climbs all over everything. It's a pain in the ass. It's ever, you can't get rid of it. I mean, the little purple flowers are nice, but whatever. It's just another weed. It's something in their way. And then you teach them what they can do with it. And all of a sudden, they love it. It's just something changes. Nothing in the world has changed. It's just in their mind. And making that happen is, obviously, you're doing it on a very different level than I am. But, but seeing, you know, somebody invert the relationship to the garden and the yard and what's a weed and what isn't i love it it's it's magic totally i'm with you that's exactly it like the motivating force yeah so not to look at not to reflect back at how beautiful i am you know because right. actually you never even see me in my no, crap no, you know it's like yeah. i don't yeah i don't do pictures of me most i mean i occasionally will show something but it's not my thing it's really to bring that focus to what I think is revolutionary. If we can change the view of ground ivy, like you're serving the mojito is a great example. And then all of a sudden everybody starts falling in love with everything that is in their environment. Mm -hmm. And then they want to take care of it. And then yeah. you have a different relationship, you know, and, and it sprouts a different culture. Absolutely. You know, and that's, you know, that's the bigger theme of like the forging and feasting book, which mm -hmm. is just a lovely hopefully delicious, wonderful yeah. object and useful, but also underneath it is this wish, you know, that, that people become ecological stewards, that they become, you know, they fall in love with their ecosystem and they, we relate to the world the way I think we may have pretty much before we Absolutely. became. Well, and we had to, I mean, yeah. the concept of taking a walk today, just for its own sake, starting, I mean, even a few hundred years ago, still today in a lot of places, but certainly back in, in prehistory, Taking a walk always concluded with bringing an armload of food back. Always. <laughs> you never just took a walk for, you know, it, there was always survival part that was kind of built into that yeah. act of walking in the woods or, or whatever. And so to be able to show people that they can walk in the front yard and come back with the wild chives and some dandelion and some ground ivy and, and make a salad that's just, or whatever they're making. Like you can cook a lot of these things. I mean, it, it makes whatever you're making better. And it connects you to that day, that time, that place, mm. uh, the people you're with, um, and your relationship to the world. The world becomes a more kind of nourishing and supportive thing, not this kind of hostile, alien right. place. Right. Um, it's your friends. Mm -hmm. You know, they're your allies. You yeah. know, and even if you can't eat them, or certain, you know, certainly the, the entry point is often through people's mouths. They want to know what they can eat. But once you bring them in to start paying attention to the ecosystem, to the flora, even if you can't eat it, a lot of the stuff we cannot eat right but it's learning who's that mm -hmm. you know what's its history what's its you know where where does it come from or and so on it's just the relationship it's to nature you know the plant kingdom often it's the foodies with the mouth but then it's really connecting to plants and then you go off and it's into the you know connecting to nature sure yeah, and we're lucky up here because we have so much nature and so many walkable places and yeah. so many different kinds of forest and grassland. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of nooks and crannies yeah. where things grow. 
um, and a lot of different kinds of things at different times of year. So students of nature. I mean, I feel like that's part of of the goal is being. You know, I'm a student of nature, and you know, all of us are really students of nature, and it's just waking that up. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just now in here. You know, where we are, it's just asleep. So much is asleep. So it's the bark. Yeah. Who, yeah, yeah, who yeah. are you? You know, what trees can I do with just their bark and then their twigs and, you know, so it's. Yeah. Or the sumac bobs are still out. <laughs> they might be a little brown, but they're there. Yeah. Yeah. They're not so good now. You but. sort of shave the outside. Uh-huh. You can sometimes get to some red. Okay. <laughs> um, so, all right. So post Colgate, you said you never fully returned to the city. So how did that, what, how did, what, did, what does that mean exactly? Um, so uh, then after graduation from college, it was part-time in the Mid-Hudson Valley mm-hmm. in the area we are in Ulster oh, County. Oh, because you said you went to Bart after that. Uh-huh. Right. So okay. it's been Ulster County mm-hmm. since 87 oh, wow. and okay. then full-time in 91. Right. I made the decision I'm not going to be in New York City. And then Tim, my other half, part, partner, um, father, baby daddy. Yeah. Um, he fully came up a couple years after that, and we raised our son upstate. Okay. So, and you're in Gardner in that general? No, we're in Stone Ridge right now, oh, okay, Marble Town. Okay. And Samsonville, 10 years before that. Okay. So 20 years where we are now. Wow. And then part-time Samsonville, and you know, five years full-time, I think, up there, mm-hmm. something like that. And so... So what, how did you make your way? I mean, if you started in alternative medicine, you clearly were getting some schooling in herbs and teas and things like that. Um, so how did that, how did, what, how those 20 years, like what was your path, you know, post school and to where you are now? Well, the seeds for doing what I'm doing now were planted in that East Village setting as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that began at the age of 11. Wow, okay. And so I, was there one particular event that... Well, I had, there was a, a man named Mickey Carter who was like the Santa Claus kind of uncle uh-huh. figure of a lot of uh, the children of the streets of that scene of the village area. Super sweetheart. And he had cured himself of some terminal disease. I didn't really know what, but it was cancer. I didn't know as yeah. a kid, though. And I got headaches. And I was like, what can I do for my headaches? And he just said, no more junk food. Um, you know, clean out the preservatives, like look for real food. And I started and mm-hmm. that's what I did. And then I stopped eating junk food at the age of 11. Wow. And, and you were receptive. I mean, so you had a palate where you enjoyed vegetables and things? Because not every 11 year old would, would be willing or able to do that. Um, I mean, I like junk food too. Sure, everyone likes I mean, food. I mean, we were in the, in the village, you know, there were bodegas. Yeah. So that's like, you know, get the junk. Sure. Get the junk on. on. Every, every corner. <laughs> exactly. But I did love real food. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't think about it. I, I definitely was receptive to real food, mm-hmm. but I liked junk too. I mean, mm-hmm. But definitely. your parents cooked good food and... My, I was raised with my mom after a certain age. My dad was no longer, he, I was, ra- I was born in Veracruz in Mexico oh, okay. and we all lived there. And then my mom took us <laughs> and, uh. So we didn't connect to that part of ourselves, you know, and we were raised, my mom is from New York and she was of that culture. Uh And so she made that shift. And she, my father was an excellent cook. Uh My grandmother of the paternal side, Mm -hmm. um, Elba, she was into plants 
and herbs. And was that an Italian tradition? Or was that it, the, Mexican? No, Mexican. Mexican. She was a so it's a lot. I mean, I don't know how much you want to hear about Falcone's Italian. Well, or? it's confusing because my Mexican ancestry is also European. Oh, okay. So my grandmother was a blue-eyed Prussian Mexican. Ah, okay. Protestant, and uh -huh. then um, my father's father was a Mayan, uh -huh. small amount of Mayan, with Italian, Mexican, uh, okay. you know, real European mix with I the see. Mexican. And um, so, I don't know, the tradition was just what it was. I mean, I think when you're in Mexico, you're eating real food, you're being fed real food. Sure. Um, the flavors of herbs are really part of, so I think as a little one, Yeah. The flavors were with me and real food plus junk food. Yeah, yeah, you know, the yeah. sugary, junky stuff sure. that was in Mexico. But then back to the East Village, my mom was is definitely into food. Mm -hmm. And the culture there was foodie, foodie, delicious, real food mixed with junk food. Yeah. You know, so we'd go um, all along First Avenue. There was the, um, the Italian produce, uh, the Polish butcher yeah, yeah, yeah. uh the italian baker you know you had everybody you had the spice shops the mm -hmm. herb shops i mean so it was a culture that really fed that maybe that just intrinsically who i am is the foodie i'm very flavor conscious very smell conscious mm -hmm. so i just and i would love to do that with my mom yeah just like walk through the neighborhood shopping you know getting all the stuff and yeah, yeah. What deals can you get and right. the best plums, just perfect ripeness or whatever, you know. And did you help her cook? No. No. I didn't. But at 11, I shifted gears and I had to cook for myself. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> you wanted this very particular thing. That, yeah, because that I started whole, I started your eating neighbor, real Mickey whole food. had recommended. Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> so I started real, the real food program, uh -huh. which was everything had to be, you know, from scratch, real. Uh -huh. And uh, it went that way. So then I was shopping for myself, That's cooking great. for myself at 11. That's great. It's like the Michael Pollan diet, but 30 years earlier. <laughs> I don't know what the hell it was. I was just like supported by this mentor. Mm -hmm. And I was in a culture that allowed it, you know, in that part of the East Village at that time. We had the shops. I could go to the health food store right across the street, like, yeah, you know, two yeah, blocks yeah. away. And bins of, pro of um, dry goods. Mm -hmm. Learn all the different grains, all the different beans mm -hmm. and the nuts and seeds. The produce section was sure, extensive. Sure. I still remember that, um, you know, that health food store smell, right? The first thing you walk <laughs> in and it's like, it's this incredible potpourri of the herbs and the spices and the, but it's like nothing smells quite like a health food store. It depends you know? where, which ones, but that was Prana. I don't know if you remember Prana on First Avenue. It, you, it was Greenberg's yeah. in the late 70s. Well, late 70s, I was, you know, 10, so. Okay. <laughs> it would, my, my, my city time kind of started in the 80s. Yeah. So Prana was there when you were there. Yeah. And in the yeah. 80s, it was Prana. Anyway, so that led from... Um, so that, that alternative um, thinking uh, about healing and the body and stuff began really young. And that's where the, the Colgate impulse was. Okay, let me become an alternative doctor. I see. But in fact, it was so uncreative, lacking in any imagination or thinking even. It was just regurgitative that I went back to the arts. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I went back, did choreography um, oh, wow. and visual arts, filmmaking and sculpture. And, um, you know, that thing that I was like, I'm not going to do. And then I went right back. <laughs> Part of who you are, obviously. But the creative process, the creative thinking, the problem solving, like yeah. when you're going to create something, you're creating... There, there is a problem-solving component, and that's 
I really feel like that's always with me. Mm-hmm. So like whatever I do. So the creative thinking, um, even at performing arts high school when I, I was a theater major and I never did theater professionally, but the education there I had really taught me so much, you know, about what I, how, what I, how I still think or work into the world. Like, the, you know, it, it, whereas the opposite of where I'm going to Colgate mm-hmm. and that you're not being asked to perceive anything and to understand and to bring to, to light anything. You're asked to memorize something and spit it out. Yeah. And so that I, I could see, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a mixed up bird here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> when you try to do things on your own terms, it can definitely take longer and be an inefficient process, but it ideally does get you where you want it to be or somewhere else that's satisfying. I, I, you know, it's not like I had, it wasn't like other people I know who have these um, straightforward thoughts, like I'm going to start here and end there. No, it's a journey. It sure. unfolds. Yeah. I mean, my whole life I wanted to be a painter and then all of a sudden I'm not. I yeah. do something else. Huh. You know, it's just, but that was the one thing. I mean, since I was two. Really? Yeah. That's what and I was, why are you not painting anymore? It was a combination of factors, mostly kind of boring, but uh, <laughs> I had started writing about food and it, it, it sort of grew to usurp mm. the art. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, some of it was very mundane because it was, you know, kind of 09, 10 after the crash and mm. nobody was buying my art. Mm. So part of it was just pragmatic. People were paying me to write magazine articles and they weren't buying my art. And, but part of it was also that I was really fully committed to a different kind mm. of living. We'd moved up here and I had the garden and I was mm. cooking and I was pickling everything and curing meat and doing like making cheese. Like right. if there was a form of fermentation that you could do in your house, I was doing it. And, um, and geeking out in all kinds of different directions culinarily, yeah. Yeah. you know, and pushing home cooking in as many ways as I could push it. And that really became kind of the consuming thing. And, it, and mm. there was enough love out in the world for it in terms of gigs and bylines. Yeah. And so that that became the new thing. It, was, it happened very organically. <laughs> um, it was not without its uh, worry and existential crises. But the shift of yeah, over it's hard. to the, the it's food hard to writing. reinvent yourself, especially yeah. when people are watching. Because huh. <laughs> people identified you as a painter. Absolutely. Yeah. That's all I ever was. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that I was never identified as one thing, so that, that I didn't have that same transition. Mm-hmm. I've always had these multi, you know, pronged or passions that are, mm-hmm. were simultaneous. Even in college, I couldn't decide, so I was a double major, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And the interest in natural healing and then the segue into herbs were always going on, even if I was dancing or I was, right. you know, doing whatever. And so, so when you started spending time up here, um, I'm, I'm curious to sort of uh, to know how you kind of built the you know the foundation for what would be you know what you're doing now in the book and the, the you know hmm. the teaching and everything. I think it, you know it, it's a pretty straightforward line in terms of that passion, just continuing to connect to um, food as medicine, mm-hmm. what that looks like. And that brings you or me into the wild foraging realm. A lot of the, the plants are food and medicine together. So sure. it was really a prime, you know, a great example of that. Um, Especially and the wild ones that the haven't, wild. Been, haven't had the bitterness spread out of them exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Most of the wild foods are also our medicines. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, they all are. So, mm-hmm. they're, so that's the place where food and medicine really converge. 
is in the wild foraging realm. Yeah. Um, so from that early 11-year-old wish to like be the most healthy and what does that look like and what would food, um, the foraging came in from that perspective, you know, from that wish or interest. And then what else happened? Um, you know, I wrote a first book called Earthly Bodies and Heavenly Hair. Right, right. That's a topical body care, 450 recipes for how to make all your own personal care. Yeah. Already when choosing to not eat synthetic foods, that was also how do you not use synthetics on your body. Right. When so did that come out? That came out in 97. 97, okay. It's still in print. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a good book. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so my passion for foraging and for connecting people to the plant kingdom started 30 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I guess how to say, so the wish to be able to care for oneself and to have, it's almost, it's an empowering thing, you know, to self-empower, you know, how do, you, how do we go out into the plant kingdom learn you know who how we can be fed or if we're sick what we can use to heal ourselves to me that was a very profound sure and still is it's just really a profound relationship and that also was a relationship I wanted to share and I don't know I never thought I want to be a teacher but I became a teacher mm-hmm. so I just was teaching for 30 years now <laughs> yeah well it's funny I mean I've noticed this too because I teach a lot of um, you know I teach cooking classes and um, I'm going to Italy as you know to do do that again um, and I, I've uh, I was talking to somebody else recently about about the the certain point where you put in the hours and you do the thing based on your own passion and all of a sudden you sort of pick your head up and realize that you've accumulated enough expertise to be a, not just a teacher but actually a, quite a good one uh-huh. <laughs> um, and and I think that when it comes from a passion like that yeah. like in your case and in mine where it's something that doesn't feel like a job um, I think that that expertise not only accumulates in a particularly nice way but it also returns to other people or, or you, you're able to deliver it to them mm. in, a, in an especially nice way because mm. there's the, the sincerities, it's built in. It's a component of it. You're not putting yeah. on airs or, or, or putting on no. an act of any kind. You're really just being you. Exactly. And, and I think people, especially now, because like we said before, there's so much that's fakery and so much contrived. Yeah. Sincerity is a, is a valuable commodity. I mean, it really yeah. is. It's an important component of learning because people register on a different level when you're, you're telling them how happy it makes you. Yeah. And they can see it. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's another good point. And I think I struggle, or not struggle, but I'm not really interested... Although Tim would disagree and probably think that I do want everyone to listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have a lot to say. But I, I actually like to receive a lot and I like to perceive and I do feel enriched more by what I can take in rather than being the center and for you to listen to me and, and I need to be the center of attention, which was the same as a performer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a performer component that's like, I, I might struggle with that feeling of like some issue and then I just push through it and say, you know what, I want to share about this because this is meaningful and I think it's worthy for them to know this. Yeah. And it isn't about them looking at me or um, as, a, as a sharer of knowledge to be on a pedestal in any way. So the idea is to be, you know, in, encouraging and, and uh, enriching all of our lives together that we do it. And that there isn't a hierarchy in it, right, even though right. I do have a lot more to say to you about this subject than you, so you better listen, right? right, right because right. that's true. Right. But at the same time, 
that isn't the point. Right. And you were speaking to them as a peer, not as a, peer. Not as a superior. Anyway. And in any way, yeah. I think I was also very, um, uh, did not like a lot of the presenters and teachers that I came across through my, you know, 35 years or whatever of this. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it's really about the heart. It's connecting through the heart to the things that I value and wanting also to bring out in other people what yeah. they have and what they've, so that's, that's the beauty of it. And mm-hmm. in, and in the social media, it's the same. Mm-hmm. It isn't to say, Hey, look how great I am. Right. 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 <sighs> that bores the hell out of me after a yeah. point. I'm like, I can't watch this is disgusting. Yeah. I want to, I want for the enthusiasm of the subject to create a cultural shift, mm-hmm. you know, and that people bring their voice out and that we all are doing it. You know, so that's the idea. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so I'm interested um, in terms of the things that we have here, the the indigenous and and pretty ubiquitous herbs and plants and flowers and things that that we all know. Um, like we talked about grand ivy and dandelion a little bit, burdock, obviously. You know, the, the, there's some um, mainstays. I'm curious what your, um, you know, if you have a few particular favorites. Um, in terms of turning people on to some of these weeds in their yards and trying to change their relationship to them, like what what your way in, what your what are your gateway <laughs> drugs for? Gateway for, drugs, flowers, right? you could say. Yeah. You know whatever whatever edible flowers there are, it's it's a good gateway. Mm-hmm. People just fall in love so with roses, eating the flowers. Nasturtiums, all roses, the, violets. Violets. The, yeah. The viola sororia comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say what is it? Early early May. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous yeah. little purple beauty. You know you could eat that. Yeah. High in vitamin C, you know, it doesn't eat the seed of the plant because the seed's going to come later. So you're not doing any, very little ecological impact. You know, it's just like... Sure. It's a renewable resource. Yeah. Or it's just there because they want us to eat it, you could say. Right. I mean, maybe. Well, same thing with dandelions because they'll just send up another one. They could, yeah. <laughs> and we don't have to worry about the dandelions. Oh not my so God. much, no. No. But so flower eating, I'd say, could be a, a gateway drug. Yeah. Um, the berries are really gateways. Sure. Um, aromatics seduce people, so things that are really fragrant. Uh-huh. Um, if you're ever like in a meadow and you come across the wild bergamot, the Monarda fistulosa, mm-hmm. it's a super powerful, probably one of our highest antioxidant plants that we have, similar mm-hmm. to like the famed Greek oregano for its antioxidant sure. content. We have our own here yeah. as a native wildflower, so it's like just turning people onto that smell. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the nettle possibility, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. if folks have heard a lot about nettle, so if they can learn it and get turned on to that, it grows where it grows. I mean, it's a little trickier because it's not everywhere. Right. Um, so, yeah. What else? Um, you're thinking, like, what turns just people like, you know, on? Yeah, ways in. I mean, obviously, a lot of these things can be dried for tea, right? So, oh, yeah. And tea's super easy yeah. and not intimidating. This is true. Um, I'm just thinking, yeah, sort of the, the, the entry-level thing. I'm just curious, like, what so your, your sort essence, of map to let people into this The world. essence waters are good, simple beginners. Mm-hmm. You know, an aromatic, um, a wild mint patch, mm-hmm. or even in your garden, or, sure. or a wild lemon balm patch. Mm-hmm. You know, you grab handfuls, put it in just room temp water, let it sit for a couple hours, and you have this very fragrant, subtle, subtle, gentle drink. Mm-hmm. Simple. Yeah. You don't even cook it. Right. You know, you just take some handfuls. Um, as an example of an entryway, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think what seduces people though into this realm too is just serving them a delicious something. Yeah, well, that right? was my next question. Yeah, is how do you take, for example, I love bitter greens, right? The whole chicory family, dandelion, all mm. of it, uh, wild and domestic. But a lot of people, particularly in this country, do not love bitterness. We kind of had it trained out of us. 
Um, so I'm curious, the next question was beyond the sort of easy stuff um, and the things that, I mean, when you tell people something is medicinal, if it tastes medicinal, that's kind of par for the course. But how do you, like, what, what do you do to make something, like, delicious, where they say, I want to just eat this? Like, mm -hmm. what's all, I'm curious what your, your go-tos well, are there. Well, there's so many things. Yeah. So many things that are delicious. Wild salads, mm -hmm. if you do them right. Mm -hmm. So where how, you're what's not, doing them right? Doing them right is finding the f flavor balance, mm -hmm. so you're not overpowering. Depending on who your customer is, like you, might be happy with a very bitter salad. Mm -hmm. But if I'm serving newbies and I want to turn them on, you're going to put that bitter in, in a very light way. You're going right. to mince up those leaves, mm -hmm. and they're just going to be really gently scattered. Mm -hmm. And maybe the same with something like a, a gill over the ground, which is also bitter but also aromatic, mm -hmm. finely minced, and then you're mixing it with blander or milder-tasting plants. So it's just learning the flavor palette of the wild greens, and then when you mix that salad, you're, not, you're creating what you think you're your audience is going to be happy with. And usually beginners need mild. Right. So you're gently putting in the more, the stronger, more bitter and the aromatics. And then the base can be more of a lamb's quarter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the violet leaf is very mild. Yes. I'm trying to think of what other ones quickly. Chickweed is Chickweed's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even cheat in some good organic lettuce or mescaline from sure. your own garden, mm -hmm. just a little bit or some lamb's uh, mache, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that's a super gentle, yeah, you know that, that one? Oh, yeah. I love that's that. Super too. cold hardy too. Yeah, I love that one. under a hoop. Yeah. So you're balancing that out. You turn them on and they're like, what? This is wild? These are weeds? This is, tastes amazing. Mm -hmm. A simple vinaigrette with enough salt and enough oil. Right. And then you've just, mostly, I mean, so many people get turned on to the wild plants by eating these salads that mm -hmm. I serve. Yeah, yeah. You know, but don't put in like, too much dandelion green. Don't put in too much garlic mustard initially. Right, right. You know, you're, so again, you're going for those milder tastes. So that's mm -hmm. the balancing of a salad. Mm -hmm. I mean, simply you can do things that you would use any greens, like a nettle quiche or um, sure. frittatas are amazing mm -hmm. with wild greens. Um, not the bitter ones as much. You know, that's where you put amaranth mm -hmm. um, or something like that. Amaranth is an amazing Yeah, well, it's, super, it's like green. lamb's quarters because it's super tender and spinachy in that way, right? It's got well, that silky texture. Lamb's quarter you can eat raw mm -hmm. and amaranth less so. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more bitter raw, but mm -hmm. cooked, it just, it shines. Mm -hmm. um, little lamb's quarter, I mean, little amaranth leaves, yes, you could also right. put them in salad. But you cut that and you saute instead of Swiss chard or... Um, kale I'm trying to think of other and people are like love it more than the cultivated greens you yeah, know? so that's yeah. another just don't even have to do much just saute it up olive oil garlic mm -hmm. you know yeah because they have that incredible velvety texture yeah and uh, kind of a meaty sweetness you know it's just <laughs> yeah so this is like you know these are the weeds everybody's pulling them out and then you just show them look let's cook this and then you know, help them to learn how, how to ID them, of course. So that's sure. a whole other story. That's right. Yeah. But uh, it, so to your gateway, you know, to what other deliciousness? I mean, desserts are also amazing. Mm, okay. You know, you can create delectable wild fruit ice creams really easily. Mm -hmm. The raw version. You don't have to make the custard, although that's nice too. Right. Um, you can even do like a granita, right? Where you just well, them. yes. I'm a, I'm sort of less into those because they're high high sugar. Ah uh, yes. So I'm a little bit more into. A little bit more nur that's a again that theme of food is medicine so mm -hmm. where am i going to get the most nourishment right so when the desserts come in they're still amazingly tasty but like a fruit mousse pie which uh -huh. is really satisfying and you take the wild fruits and then you 
they're, you're using a gelatin mm -hmm. and you're basically, you're creating this really rich fruit custard that's lightly sweetened mm -hmm. and then you put it in a pressed crust of, of a nut and dried fruit oh, fantastic. Um, or other, you could do any crust, any but crust, that yeah. works really well. Yeah. I serve those and people are like, ah, you know, you sprinkle elderberries on top and yeah, that's great. That's great. But the berries are going to grab. Sure. Fruits and easy, anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and especially if you, I don't know if you, I'm a big fan of using, um, I make maple every winter. I'm about to start with my buddy. We do it every year. And um, we're lucky to have, you know, maple and honey here as local native sugars. Yes. So I, I tend to lean pretty heavily on those. Me too. If I use a sweetener, it's going to be those two typically. And we do our own maple too. Okay. It's insane over there. The sugar. It's, it's the best, man. And it's an excuse. <laughs> like, what other reason do you have to get outside in like late February and do some physical work and, and make food from the ground, right? That's right. I feel that for Tim, who's really the initiator of it, it's his therapy. Yeah, yeah. It's late February, March therapy. Mm -hmm. And you start, the sun starts to get a little higher and you feel it on your face. And at, the sap is rising and it's reminding you that actually you can't see it, but everything is shifting. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like. Imperceptibly. Yeah. It's yeah. happening. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> no, it's a big, it's a big part of this time of year for me. Yeah. Just because it really is therapeutic. The ritual, the mm -hmm. fire. Yeah. And I always cook something in the fire. Mm. And, you know, braise some piece of meat in the sap and let it reduce all day. It's pretty great. We have a sugar bu uh, sugar bush and mm -hmm. then a little shack within it. It's on our property mm -hmm. that Tim built. And um, there's two sleeping alcove platforms because often it's a 24-hour burn. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I leave usually at 3 a.m. and let Tim finish. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're feeding that fire. Yeah. And yeah. again, that's like uh, as much as it's a, a drudgery in some way, it's also an amazing ritual yeah. you know that shifts your perspective on things to stay up or you know be feeding a fire outside for hours absolutely yeah. well, i know a guy who has a wood uh, kiln further south like around cold spring and that's a sort of three four days of 24 hour stoking the fire but <laughs> when it's all over you get you know <laughs> you get pots that that's were, his that's his work that's my work oh oh yeah i fired some nice. i fired some stuff in his kiln cool yeah um i can show you after uh and there, there's that investment. I think, in a way, it's kind of analogous to the work, say, insofar as it feels like work, which to me it usually doesn't. But when you take a walk to gather food, even if it's a strenuous one, there's some hiking or you slip and bust your knee or something, you still you come back with a bag of food and you're a little dirty and a little sweaty and maybe you got a mosquito bite. But um, there's there's sort of information in that food now that, that's in your mind, right? But But so when you consume it, when you prepare it, and you eat it, to me it's sort of analogous to that maple syrup that you spent, you know, all damn night boiling down, or the pot that you stoked a fire for days to fire. The work of the making, the, the sort of, you know, the slow, methodical, ritualized task contributes more meaning to me, to the result, even if it's just a salad or a simple bowl that you eat well, soup Well, it goes back to your, you know, to the earlier part of this conversation where the creative process mm -hmm. The creative process, being creative people in the arts, right, which is part of my blood and your blood, and now we can bring it to feeding ourselves mm -hmm. or to feeding our friends or to, to, to functional objects. So mm -hmm. it's that same impulse of being in a journey that you have a relationship with, but then you actually get to eat it or you get to share it. But I'll add to that there's also something now that's happening to me is that I don't have to eat it, mm -hmm. that in fact... The meditation or the journey 
is the learning. Mm -hmm. And um, I do love to eat it too, but a lot of times I find myself that I'm walking for a couple of hours and I'm studying. Yeah. And then the bears come around. Uh And then I'm in an ecosystem and I'm in an experience that isn't tied to an end result. Mm -hmm. Just being in the woods. Even though the being in the woods is filling the reservoir as I'm being educated, I'm learning, I'm listening because I'm out there IDing as much as possible. So it isn't, it is still, I guess, accumulating knowledge, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be a basket full of food, but it's filling the basket Mm -hmm. of oneself. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's a basket full of food, like a huge amount of... But sometimes you just pick a spot and watch. Right. I like to do that. Exactly. And you can see there's a lot going on, a lot of critters, and if you hold still, a lot of guys, you know, they come out of the woodwork, as it were, and start to do their thing because you're not disrupting their, you're not making noise. Right, and I think the mushroom hunting is what I'm referring to a lot because that's really a very slow time of moving. And most of it's not edible anyway, so you don't need to gather it. Or I do because I want to learn it. Sure, and you want to take pictures and ID it. Yeah. yeah. But it is, it's a, all make of a sudden a the mind. Yeah, make yeah. a spore print, ID it, learn about it without having to consume it, mm-hmm. I guess, to engage with it, right? Sure. And that richness is also part of what fuels um, this work or whatever, yeah. So with mushrooms, is that, because mushrooms are a tricky thing to self teach. So uh, I assume you've worked with some other people there to build a. Some expertise. Well, I've been learning mushrooms for 30 years now, too, but I don't teach them because I'm more, it's scary, because fate, you know, it's much more deadly. Um, Although I am teaching maybe them a little bit, maybe this, I don't know, we'll see. I feel much more concern. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have any, so mostly I'd say that I'm Mm self-learning, but I'm constantly bouncing off of people who are much, you know, more experienced in the mushroom realm. Although they know they don't know so much either, so it's there's so much mystery in the mushrooms. There is. So it isn't, yeah. And I, even even experts. I mean, the the, the I, I'm part of a bunch of online forums. I mean, I'm still very much a tourist, but I'm, I'm every year I add a few to my repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, never to the point where I would lead a class on it or anything. Mm-hmm. But I have, um, you know, I've helped some friends and neighbors. I do a few things. Like last year when there was so much rain, I. I People were calling me and saying, can you come over and tell me if these are chanterelles? Because their yard was carpeted with them. Wow. And so I would come over and help them show them, you know, for certain things that are you know, Easy. trumpets, chanterelles, yeah. things that are, right. um, you know, wading into the discussion about whether we have a King Boli that's native in America and what it's actually, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. No, the, the experts don't even know. They, they can't don't even know. Agree. They keep changing yeah. their minds. Yeah. Well, I set a challenge for myself that I learn at least one new species of mushroom a day. A day? That wow. was what I was doing. That's ambitious. When the rains came. Mm-hmm. Because they were there. And it was crazy. They and were everywhere. Everywhere. And if I didn't engage them, I was like, yeah. I was distressed. No, so it was I like needed, a river of mushrooms. It was amazing. And so I, you know, and and I, I'm good at keying things out because I've been studying for so long, right? Yeah, so I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so so, so yeah. what uh, what did you find this last year when we had the, with the year of mushrooms that you'd never seen before or never like what you was, mean what mushrooms did I yeah find? what stood out what was particularly memorable or, or I mean I oh. need my little book to tell you right because ah, okay. I'm learning all the Latin scientific names sure, and stuff sure um, but incredible I mean the ones we know there was an incredible amount of the mitakis the Gafola yes. frondosas crazy crazy like ten times the normal yield and a given a given tree that had one or two would have twelve 
I mean, I had to leave like 30 pounds because I couldn't carry, you know, the load that I already had. Yeah. Dehydrated them, so I've got endless maitake. Mm-hmm. You must have endless. I have maitake. Yeah. I have a ton of maitake trumpets and morels were the three. Mm-hmm. And chanterelles too, they don't dry well. So I froze those or I pickled a bunch. Mm-hmm. But mostly we just ate the chanterelles because mm-hmm. the, they don't keep so good. Yeah, I think my brother-in-law, he dries them and he gave me a bag. They're okay. Little They're okay. They lose that fruitiness. They lose that magic apricot mm-hmm. kind of note to me. Yeah, they say they are more buttery, I think, this mm-hmm. way dried. But anyway, I didn't dry them. He did what else? I mean, the mushrooms, again, it was a journey of engaging the fungi in a big way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, always, can I eat you? Although I did eat, you know, a lot of new, yeah. but I'm very cautious. So I was sure. going really slowly. Oh, yeah. I throw out a lot. Well, I don't throw them out, but I study them and watch them decay. Well, I compost and... them. <laughs> and then I throw them back into the woods. Yeah. It was, I mean, oh, yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I always, if I'm, if I trim especially maitake and chanterelles, but also trumpets. The trimmings all go, I scatter them around oak trees, always. Yeah, me too. Trying, bring them back. There was a puffball that I don't really like puffballs that much. It was mm. about that big. Wow. You know what those are great for? Although that might have been too big. Um, but a, a good kind of moderate size. For the lasagna thing? For the lasagna thing, I actually, my favorite thing to do with them is just make the grilled cheese. and But the puffball becomes the Wonder Bread. So you just put cheese between two slices of yeah, puffball and yeah. just saute that in butter till the cheese melts. It's so good. Really? Yeah. Huh. This just never, I felt like it was slimy and it just, I tried every different thing. I didn't want to bread it. I don't like breading things and frying them, but that's what everybody was saying to do. That would probably dehydrate it Yeah, but you could do that more. to the Sunday Times and it would taste good. I mean, that's what that method is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I dehydrated most of that yeah. puffball uh-huh. and I sprinkled the powder into things and it thickens it and it's nice. But... That's, you know, a, a big thing this size turned into, like, you know, a jar sure. of powder, that, you know. The, but the one, powders are one, good because you can use One sixteenth of yeah, its but, volume. But, but powders are great because you can, you can thicken a gravy with it. You can do all kinds of invisible. Totally. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm putting mushrooms in. In everything. My takis, <laughs> puffball, and chanterelles. All those three dehydrated mm-hmm. in everything. Mm-hmm. I feel a little bit spoiled. Yeah. Yeah, well, we are spoiled. I mean, especially after last summer. I mean, it was it was just it was crazy. It was, you couldn't put you couldn't lay eyes on the forest floor without a mushroom being in your field of vision. It was just extraordinary. Uh, I got um, I had never found lobsters before, mm. so I was pretty excited. Mm. It was a good year for lobsters. Mm. Um, I think that was the best, and it was just the biggest like you know biggest yield of of all the st- this regular standards you know yeah. by far like yeah. just the quantity. Even in May, before the big rains came, the morel. See, I just hit the right day, I guess. But I didn't get a lot of morels, just a few. I, I you found, got a lot of morels. I found ten pounds in two and a half hours, <laughs> in one one small area. Just what, what were the trees? All apple. Just so a, it was an old orchard. Old rundown orchard that hasn't ever been sprayed. Yeah, it was perfect. Mm, I, went, I wonder if it's the one that um, I'm thinking of out, outside of Woodstock. It's not. Okay. It's not. It's far away. Okay. Um, um, but it's also steep, and it's covered in thorns and poison ivy. Mm. So it's you have mm. to really want the morels. But uh, you know, it's tick central. It's you know, you got to right. spray yourself and really suit up. Did you dehydrate a lot of those? I did. I had to. Yeah. yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Um, but you know, they they you know they they also lose a little magic, but they mm. they reconstitute pretty well. You know, and again, just back to that point of the journey, I almost feel like the hunt for the mushrooms is more exciting than oh, the yeah. mushroom itself Absolutely. the eating of the mushroom Absolutely. like I, mean, I love eating the mushrooms but I'm like that engaged mind that moves through 
the landscape, you know, that's in that receptive, tuned in, per- it's perceptive fundamentally place. Fundamentally human. That's it is the our, thing that it I It is our nature. It is what we evolved to do. Yeah. Is creep through the woods, peering <laughs> intently at everything, <laughs> trying to identify food sources. <laughs> it's who we are. And, and to me, like, I mean, if you, my friends who hunt animals, they say the same thing. Yeah. Fishermen, ice fishing too. It's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, it's not the world's, but I get to be outside and I don't have to talk to my family all day, you know? <laughs> it's heaven. It's silent, you know? The silence. I sit on my perch in the woods with the rifle in my lap and if somebody walks by, you know, I'll shoot them. But if not, I get to sit in a tree all day. It's heaven, you know? So it's that Total, meditative. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's connecting... You know, in our in our coddled modern lives, even just continuing to maintain that connection and that relationship with forest or or you know any kind of well, land with exactly with the environment. It absolutely for me it lowers stress and it allows me to solve some problems, mm. even unconsciously. You know, it doesn't and you know just kind of the the inner monologue becomes pitched differently after mm-hmm. an hour or two in the woods it's almost like through that process of engaging with nature you digest yes yeah, it gives you time on. to process yeah it's almost like dreaming in a way yeah you process subconsciously yep. things that have been on your mind but you haven't been in your because you have too much shit that's in your Chatter. face when you're living your life or shopping or working or staring at a computer or any of those things there's mm-hmm. too much stuff in like right in your face and and when you're out in the woods the you, you get to look further away from yourself than you ever do in a store or even in a house, um, in any kind of building, really, unless it's an auditorium. Uh, so you, your, your gaze focuses further away. You're breathing the cleanest possible air. And the only sounds you hear are breeze and birds and whatever and snapping twigs. And it, it's just, oh, man, it, it really, <laughs> my whole head just kind of breaks Clears. open and, and <laughs> yeah, relaxes. It's... It's powerful. And then, you know, more often than not, I do come back with a bag of something to eat. <laughs> and then it, then it gets to, you know, so you bring that back and get to share it with people. Um, so I'm curious, like, with, the, with this sort of part Mexican, part Italian, part just good old-fashioned American. Um, Don't my, forget the Jewish. Oh, yeah? Is that, was that your, <laughs> my mom, your Eastern, mom's side? Eastern European Jewish Me too. from, from Me too. Lithuania and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, most uh-huh. likely Poland. And then... The Mexican mm-hmm. with the German, Mayan, Italian. Right. So it's a good, good American mutt. <laughs> mutt. Yeah. Serious mutt. Uh, my mom's side was also Eastern European Jew. So I'm curious, though, uh, do you have, um, because of how and where you grew up or because of the journey you've taken since then, do you have kind of a go-to, you know, cuisine in terms of like, or do you, are you just like pan-global, I'm in the mood for, you know, curry one night and pasta the next and... I'm sort of curious what your identity is culinarily in terms of how you really like to cook. Yeah, I think my identity is not specifically, uh, you know, it's not an ethnicity. It's the depth of flavor, the richness, and that can go to Indian, it can go to Italian, it can go to Mexican, it Mm -hmm. can go all around the globe. But it's that wanting of some pretty deep nourishment. Mm -hmm. So that's what I look for. In the food, right, right, and so this. <laughs> so I'm not. I'm. I'm pretty low in the, um, in the carb range these days, mm-hmm. which is more of a empty carb, mm-hmm. and more into that. Where's the nutrient density in the meal, right, and the deep flavors, right, and that's right. where I go. So there's the fatty zone and the right. more <laughs> protein-rich zones, 
and then also those bursts of flavors in the leafies and in the yeah. spices and in, in the fruits, the more the berries than anything. Sure. But the pawpaw is pretty lovely. Yeah. You know, but I'm going for that more. But I love all the cuisine, so sure. I'm happy to yeah. go a- Asian and or Eastern European. Let's go Polish, or, you know, and see what we can do with that. Yeah. So um, this time of year when there's, like you said, there's not a whole lot to forage. Um, and you know, my, uh, there's not a lot in the way of fresh. I mean, I have some people in Kingston with, with the greenhouse, you know, so they have mm. some, there are some fresh greens locally. Mm. And normally I have hoops this year. I didn't do it, but I'm curious. And I have a lot of kimchi, right? So I got a lot of fermented and preserved things, but I'm curious, like, how do you generate those pops of flavor and nutrient density at this time of year, assuming you're still trying to get things from the region or, or your own basement or whatever? Well, the, those dried mushrooms mm-hmm. are featured in, it can be in all the different ethnicities, you know, it can go sure. more Japanese or it can go more Polish, but my taki doesn't sound right in a yeah. sort of Polish style soup with cabbage and stuff, but yeah. you can go that direction. So what's happening though is the dehydrated uh, teas can mm-hmm. come out, um, dried leaves and things. And then the frozen berries and the frozen pawpaw, which is also being brought out. The freezer plays a big role. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of food in that freezer. Yeah. Um, and then some in the dehydrated zone. Um, the pickling, which I sometimes get into um, right now, we're more purchasing local artisanal uh, kimchis and yeah. um, things that are you know from Hawthorne Valley or mm-hmm. ha- Hosta Hill or just small, delicious, tasty. Um, I do have weird pickle things like the the uh, tips of the white pine I put into a pickle brine. It's pretty weird. <laughs> That's not weird at all. Uh, no, it tastes bizarre. Like it's a little bit more resinous than I think is right. Mm. You know, on your yeah, you feel yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so there's in the fridge you're gonna find like endless experiments, and then we'll see who gets pulled out and how it gets integrated. But I'd say that I am. A cheater, like I want to, ju- you know, I'll go to the co-op. So I, I'm a High Falls Food Co-op right. member, and I'm gonna get my leafy greens. You know, yeah, I'm not. Sure. I'm gonna have. Mm-hmm. And but so because and meat plays a big role. So I get mm-hmm. a, a pretty wild style movable beast is the friends' um, business, and they do pretty wild style cattle, no grain, and so that's in the freezer. That's great. And yeah. you know, I'm using the whole nose to tail component sure and whenever i have a farmer friend that's doing good work with an animal i'll support them by part of whatever they're selling you know and uh, and mostly it's the the animals are eating the ecosystem so it's my way of eating the ecosystem in the winter or even in the summer it's in the animal's body so they're the goats that our friends are raising are really on their um scrubby zone you know Mm -hmm. they're, they're eating the the shrubs and oh yeah, trees goats are and, terrific. They'll braise on anything. Yeah, so yeah. The, they're eating that ecosystem, and then I'm going to be eating that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. I agree. I mean, so I in the winter, that's more the reality, right? You know, and the other things come in, but they're not the bulk of. And even in the growing season, I have to say that I don't feel like um, the plant kingdom can fully support us. I think we would need to be eating insects, or the I I, I was a vegan actually in those mm. early years mm-hmm. of whole food transition in that pre-teen, teen Mm -hmm. era. Mm -hmm. And I learned through my own body that it's not a a healthy way, at least for me and for a lot of other people. Yeah, it's hard to pull off for a lot of people. Not a good thing for a lot of us. Yeah. And so the animal kingdom is is really important and nose-to-tail type of animal kingdom. Absolutely, yeah. And it can be insect or it can be fish 
or poultry. Um, so I'm not just, uh, you know, my book Foraging and Feasting does feature the plants, but, you know, it could, it, you know, to fill it out, we might really need to be talking about the insects or the squirrels and then the larger mammals or the birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that's sad, but it's just what it is. Well, I don't think it's sad. I mean, it, again, it's how we evolved. I, I think there's a, it could not be more different to eat a goat that your friend raised on steep, brambly land near you. Poison ivy. Yeah. And, you know. and, and, and Rosa multiflora. Rosa multiflora, exactly. <laughs> Which nothing else will eat. No. And then, there, then to buy some kind of um, grain-fed feedlot cattle from the Midwest. No, you know? that's I mean, not it's, happening it's, for it's, me. It's, no. no. And, and, and so, yes, you can say if you zoom out far enough, it's eating animals, right? But that's really the only thing they have in common. Yeah. And so for me, and I've actually been eating less beef because I feel like I get a half pig every year and I eat a lot of lamb and goat. But I think that our steep land around here is much more efficient at raising smaller quadrupeds than in cows. Mm-hmm. And they raise faster and they, Interesting. They, yeah. they consume less per calorie and blah, blah, blah. Um, I also happen to love lamb and mm. duck and, mm. you know, I, I, I like beef. It's not my favorite. Yeah. I prefer the more assertive, you know, sort of gamey quality of lamb. Mm. Um, so, and duck fat is, you know, the best thing in the world. So, Goose for, fat. Goose, yeah. I mean, so for me, it's really... Uh, it's a continuation, I think, mm. um, of the same conversation with the land around here. I agree, yeah. It's not, it's not it's apart from it. No. Although, if I was to be eating the animals from the ecosystem where I am, it's bear, and I haven't really put myself to do that. I ate bear once. My neighbor in Woodstock shot one out in uh, Minkalo a few winters ago, probably closer to 10 years ago at this point, and um, gave me a bunch. And um, it... It was pre-butchered, you know, by one of these guys that you'll take your... your Taxidermy guys. Yeah, yeah, one of your wild game guys will take it apart and vacuum wrap it for you or whatever. And he had trimmed all the fat off of it. So it was just like dark red meat. Mm. with, And it didn't really have any character. Mm. Interesting. Um, so it was okay, but it was really like... It was sort of like... Mm-hmm venison with a little extra weirdness thrown in it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> that and you right. can get trichinosis from bears so i had to kind of cook it and i made chili out of it at which point you can't taste anything anyway so yeah i don't i can't i don't have a lot to say about bear me neither except that they are with me in my in our landscape and mm-hmm. and i appreciate them and oh they're beautiful and i would and, and so you know there would be that whole thing like if i was to really be eating the ecosystem i would be eating that bear yeah and i haven't gotten to that yet but you don't hunt i mean you've raised some animals, i don't, but you don't hunt. hunt yeah so i don't know i i could hunt i could trap small things probably mm-hmm. But see, that's maybe hypocritical, but that's how it is. I, it's not. I mean, there are also so many hours in a day, right? I mean, and you're not all about self-sufficiency, right? You're not homesteading, right? You're not. No, although I'm, I'm strongly engaged in, you know, eating from my region as much as possible. But I cheat, go to the co-op, get sure, the California do. greens. I, you I know. had coffee this morning. <laughs> I used olive oil in my lunch. I mean, yeah, it's, I do it's too. okay. I use that. It's okay. But I feel like I do have that commitment to trying to do as much local as possible, and mm-hmm. that's really strong in there. Mm-hmm. But also just tastes better. I mean, this is like, mm-hmm. you can, it's very easy to sound, you know, like a sort of uh, hipster, preachy kind of hipster douche because I only use local food. But, I mean, honestly, you of all people know the difference between a salad that you picked three minutes ago outside your front door and one that you bought in a clamshell from California. 
I it's, try to avoid those clamshells. We all do. But oh. it's, it's almost <laughs> as different as the goat your friend raised versus the feedlot cattle from Nebraska in terms of the, mm. the amount of flavor and pleasure you get from it. Mm. Even, leaving aside the ethics, even. Just the amount. To me, mm. it's, when I cut something, especially salad greens, outside my door, come inside, wash them, and eat them within inside of five or ten minutes, it's the difference to me between a super sharp high-res photo and a kind of pixely JPEG. <laughs> there's just more information. It's richer. It's more. There's more detail. It's much more pleasurable, and and it has this after. There's that lingering. You know that kind of buttery quality that's things like arugula and certain other greens have. There's really almost a fatty aftertaste. That's just not present in greens that have been cut. You know that are even, you that, mean even organically grown. Even organic and local. But if they've been sitting in the in the co-op for three days, it's not there anymore. That's, it's gone. I do want to add to the salad eating that when you're eating the wild salads, mm-hmm. not only is the flavor profile just so profoundly different, but you energetically get a really different thing after you eat it. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, my, there's a sense of awareness. Yeah. And it sounds super hokey, but other people too, it's almost like you're getting high from eating no, the no, salad. I agree. No, it's I, like, poop, I agree. It's like poop. I agree. Pop. You know, yeah. your vision yeah, pops. Yeah, yeah, everything yeah. is like more open. No, I, I mean it does. Sound, it does sound hokey, but it's but it's also. I mean, experientially, from my point of view, it's absolutely true. And even nettle infusion can do that. I have to say, maybe it's the chlorophyll content of everything. I'm not sure. It could be because the nettle really also just simply drinking a couple of, you know, I bring nettle infusion to parties sometimes. Mm. <laughs> it's like this deep green, like muddy looking thing, and people are you know drinking their alcohol. But then occasionally somebody will join me with I don't drink much, mm-hmm. with the um, infusion and. They also get high from it, you yeah, know. So they're yeah, like, "Oh wow, this <laughs> saved me from the the liquor." Not that I'm trying to save anyone; sure, it's just my I own choice. It. I, I want to drink that, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. It's my choice. Well, it, but it's also, I think, I mean, we mentioned before that it hasn't had any of the wildness bred out of it. None. So all the it's, weird and, phytochemicals and alkaloids and things that it it, it naturally mm, has to repel predators. Nettle is super saturated with funkiness, chemical-wise. I mean, it's just so much that it does, you know. You're right. Yeah, I mean, it's there. It's zing. Yeah. <laughs> so what's um what's coming up? You have you have sort of I don't know developments. Another book, interesting <laughs> things. You're planning all your spring and summer classes. What's uh... classes are coming up? The yeah. herbal intensive starts in May. That's uh-huh. a six month program I offer. I take 15 people through the growing season on our land. Mm-hmm. That's weekly. Um, it's a monthly, just monthly. one Saturday, and um, so I'm excited for that. That's coming up, and then. The Greenpoint um, farm uh, garden, what is it? Community garden in Greenpoint. They're gonna, they want me down there to do a plant walk. Super oh, fun. So we'll be engaging the land, uh, the plants in their Greenpoint. In their Greenpoint is it Greenpoint? Yeah, that's it. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Next to Williamsburg. Yeah. Yeah. I get my neighborhoods in Brooklyn mixed up. You know, as a Manhattan girl. Sure. Yeah. We yeah. kind of like denied Brooklyn. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> growing you up you can't deny Brooklyn any longer no but Brooklyn growing will, up it Brooklyn was like Brooklyn over there it's terrible mm-hmm. it's like a real Manhattan centric reality but so anyway I'll, that's fun just to go into the city and turn people on and, and then we'll meander out of their garden and into hopefully this lot that's wild and overgrown they think we have access so cool not that we're going to eat from it because it's no, pretty the, toxic the, yeah, but Greenpoint we're going to learn is not a, not a healthy heavy toxicity but we're going to learn so mm-hmm. still that's an example of being in the ecosystem where do you live? What plants grow? And you can't necessarily eat them, but you can open up 
you know, your worldview. You can yeah, learn yeah, about yeah. all these plants. And you can bring that knowledge, say, into Prospect Park exactly. or into Greenwood Cemetery, which That's are right. which are not, you know, on very different kinds of land. Greenpoint's kind of a super fun site. Yeah, it is eat, heavy, heavy toxicity. Yeah. So, but anyway, I love to teach in urban settings. Mm-hmm. I love that contrast. Just something so poetic about look who's growing right in the funkiest stuff. Absolutely. You know, and, and the amazingness that these plants offer. Not that you can eat from there, but you can learn from there. Yeah. Um, and then other things, the uh, International Herb Symposium is mm-hmm. um, a pretty awesome three-day in- uh, intensive offering in Wheaton, Massachusetts, Wheaton College. Oh, fun. Norton, Massachusetts. Norton, Wheaton, Wheaton College, yeah. yeah. Wheaton yeah. College. So that's going to be really fun. That's like 700 people come and wow. teachers, 60 of us presenting. That's going to be super cool. That's I've cool. done that before, huh. and I'm happy to be there again. Trying to think of what else. I mean, there's on our on the Botanical Arts Press website, there is an events tab. And when things come up, I try to plug them in so folks can see. Um, and, and lots of them come up. Like, you know, plant walks here, plant walks there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not remembering all of them. Well, that's okay. <laughs> They're in the calendar. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a good year. Yeah, it's a good year. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. It's really fun. Yeah, thanks. Dina Falcone, botanicalartspress.com, foraging and feasting on Instagram, foraging feasting on Facebook. I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net, theme music by my son Milo Barrett, smilobee.com. And remember, the most healthy, micronutrient-rich, wild-crafted herbal cocktail you ever had still ended up in the toilet.